Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, a partner-only edition again this week. And so thanks for being with me, and thanks again for your support and fellowship uh, in thinking about what it means to live as one of the people of Christ crucified. What does it mean to live with the truth of Christ crucified in our minds and on our lips? And in today's episode, which is called You Knitted Me Together, quote from Psalm 139 there, we think about the status and nature of the unborn child and what I hope is a fresh approach to thinking about it that might help us in our conversations with people about abortion and all those difficult subjects. This subject came to my mind for this week's episode for a couple of reasons. A few years ago, I was teaching on this subject at Moore College in the ethics course and had a few insights and thoughts that I hadn't thought about before and that have been burbling about in the back of my mind for some time. And then just in the last week, I was up at Mid-Year Conference, the big student conference that Campus Bible Study runs every year. Uh, I was up in Katoomba. It was pretty chilly, but it was a very stimulating and helpful and encouraging week. And as part of that week, on one afternoon, there was an excellent seminar on abortion and euthanasia that got all these ideas burbling away in my mind again. And so I thought I'd share them with you. You knitted me together. Well, we have another grandson on the way. We're still a few months away from meeting him, but his parents have already decided what he'll be called and have even let the rest of us in on the choice. And so little Nick has become someone in our family already. We talk about how well-defined his leg muscles are in the ultrasound, He's bound to be a good rugby player, his dad says. And we joke about whether his personality will end up being like his namesake, another Nick in our family. And in a very real way then, little Nick, as we were calling him, is already part of the crew. He's one of the gang. We know him and we love him, even though we haven't yet met him. All this is perfectly normal and many of you may be familiar with this experience. But it's also slightly strange when you think about it as well, because little Nick has none of the normal faculties or properties of a human being that we normally would relate to in this way. Apart from the miracle of the ultrasound, he's entirely hidden and absent. We can't see him or touch or speak to him or hear him, nor he us. And yet we joke about him already and include him in the conversation and make preparations for his arrival, as if he is a long-lost relative soon to arrive from overseas. God, of course, knows little Nick far better than we do. He is knitting him together in his mother's womb, in the famous words of Psalm 139. In fact, Psalm 139 goes quite some way further in its description of how much God knows about us before our birth. His eyes see us when we're hidden from everyone else, when our substance is as yet unformed, says the psalmist. Every one of our days is already written in his book before any of them have come to be. And the conclusion that we often draw from Psalm 139 is that the life of the unborn child, therefore, is clearly a human life and is valuable, even sacred. It's hidden, it's still in formation And yet it is a real life all the same, a life that God knows and loves and that we should also love and protect. All the same, when we talk about these issues, when we talk about abortion with 
non-Christian friends or pro-choice friends or in social debates on these questions, we often feel that bringing Psalm 139 to the discussion might not cut much ice, and it probably wouldn't. And so accordingly, we often find ourselves drawn into the argument about what constitutes prenatal human life and whether the unborn baby has enough of the required characteristics or properties to qualify. So, for example, does this mean that possession of the complete human DNA package is necessary? Is that what renders little Nick a human being at this point? Or is there more required before we treat him as an independent life in his own right and not simply part of his mother's body? Is it the point at which his heart begins to beat, for example, or the development of his brain stem or his ability to feel pain? At different ends of the process, this feels easier and harder. At 38 weeks, it's much easier to regard Nick as a little person in his own right. He's fully grown in the womb. He's ready for that short, agonising journey down the birth canal. At that point, it seems absurd and arbitrary to suggest that he's not a human being worthy of all our protection, just because he hasn't made that short journey down the birth canal yet. But at the other end of the process, when he's just a very small, a microscopic, in fact, clump of cells, he looks much less like the kind of human life that we're used to seeing. He seems more like just a piece of tissue, and many everyday people find it easy to persuade themselves that this little clump of cells is not enough of a human being to be worthy of protection. When we find ourselves in arguments like this about what properties or faculties would need to be present, what characteristics the unborn child would need to have in order to be recognised as a human being, as a human life, those kind of arguments don't tend to get very far, because who gets to say? Who gets to set the standard or to draw the line? We want to be able to say, or you'd prefer to say, that there is something essentially human about unborn little Nick, regardless of whether he does or doesn't yet possess certain abilities or characteristics or properties. But that only then gets us to another conundrum. What is that human essence? How would you define it? Is it a soul, for example? Well, it occurs to me that Psalm 139 may help us get past this question, even if we don't always feel able to quote it in conversation. When the psalmist refers to God's knowledge of the unborn child, it's not unborn human life in general that he refers to, but his own. You knitted me together, he says. You saw my frame when I was being made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and so on. The unborn life in the womb is a someone. It's the psalmist, whose identity and personal history stretches in an unbroken line from his hidden formation in the womb to the time many years later when he is looking back and reflecting on God's knowledge of him prior to his birth in Psalm 139. We discover in the psalm that the life in the womb is a person. It's the same person who is writing the psalm. It's a person who can be called me, or my, or I, or you. 
after little Nick is born, God willing, we'll one day say to him things like, we used to talk about you when you were still in your mummy's tummy. And the you that is little Nick in that sentence is the same person that was in his mother's womb. We all know this about ourselves and each other. The you that is you and the me that is me started well before either of us were born. Our parents and relatives identified us and talked about us when we were in the womb. And we can look back and talk and think about our pre-birth selves, just like the psalmist does. The real question then is not whether unborn babies have sufficient properties to be regarded as human beings or not. The real question is whether they are persons. Are they able to be identified and addressed as someones, as unique and irreplaceable someones who are already in personal relationship with others, like little Nick is with us already? Will they continue to have an unbroken personal history within that web of relationships if we don't kill them first? If so, then they are persons, not things, and they deserve to be loved. They're not objects to be disposed of at will. And when discussing abortion, I suspect we'll do better to talk this way, to talk less about the sanctity of life, which gets us into discussion about how you define life, and more about the uniqueness and preciousness of people, of persons. Because we don't have to make an argument for treating people differently from things. In fact, as soon as we identify someone as a someone, as a person rather than a thing, we experience the moral demand that persons always make upon us. If I encounter someone on the street, we'll do that dance together where we figure out which of us is going to step this way or that way to avoid a collision. But if I encounter an empty cardboard box on the footpath in front of me, it's not really the same kind of interaction. I might casually push it to one side with my foot, or I might even pick it up and put it in the bin so that someone else doesn't have to. But the very existence of a person walking towards me makes me immediately aware that I have an obligation to relate to him or her differently as a person. Everyone understands this. Everyone accepts this. People are special. People are worthy of respect and consideration and love. You can't treat people like things. You can't dispose of people when their existence makes your life harder. In fact, those people who don't understand this, we tend to call psychopaths. The unborn child is a someone. Someone that we can name and identify and relate to in love. Someone whose identity and history has already begun. And that makes him or her a person from the very beginning. And persons demand that we treat them as persons, not as objects. I wonder whether this might be a more fruitful kind of conversation to have with our pro-choice friends, rather than those debates about what constitutes human life. I wonder if we'd do better to talk about the unborn child as a person. And if our friends are struggling to accept this point, perhaps we could just ask them one question. When you were in your mother's womb, was that you in there? Well, I wonder, is that a more helpful approach 
to talking about abortion and the status of the unborn child. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Uh, Certainly there are deep waters here and we've been skating across the surface of some big issues, in particular the philosophy of personhood. Personhood is one of those complicated things that we all implicitly understand without really thinking about it, but which is very difficult to describe and account for once you try to do so. None of us really need to be told what a person is or how to tell the difference in everyday life between a someone and a something, but trying to describe that philosophically is no easy task. Because personhood isn't made up of any particular set of characteristics or properties. You can take away any of your human abilities or characteristics, uh, temporarily or permanently, and you would still be you. Who we are as an identity, as a person, is not interchangeable with what we are, with the kind of characteristics or properties we possess. Now, that last sentence, who we are is not interchangeable with what we are, is pretty much a direct quote from Robert Spayman's book, Persons, the Difference Between Someone and Something. It's published by Oxford University Press in 2006. If you'd like to really hurt your brain by delving into this issue further, I'd recommend Spayman's book. It's profound. It's not a simple read by any means, but it delves into these questions Um, with great insight, I think. That's Robert Spayman, S-P-A-E-M-A-N-N, Spayman, Robert Spayman, Persons, The Difference Between Someone and Something. And the other indispensable resource, of course, for all these discussions is Megan Best's book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Ethics and the Beginning of Human Life, uh, published by Matthias Media, I'd like to say about seven or eight years ago, but I'm really struggling to think of what the publication date is for that one. Uh, as a, a book to have on your shelf that covers all aspects of the ethics of beginning of the beginnings of life, uh, from issues not only surrounding abortion, but uh, conception and contraception, uh, IVF and assisted reproductive technology and all those questions. Megan's book is basically the book to have and to consult. It, it contains all the information you need to understand not only medically what the, uh, the scenarios and situations are, but also ethically how to think about them. Well, I think that'll just about do for today. This is a partner post, as I said. Thanks once again for your support. And I'm really interested to hear your feedback on this question and on the conversations you're having with people on this question. Thanks, too, for the various bits of feedback that I'm continuing to get about singing and music and the affections. It's the kind of subject that always generates a bit of feedback. And when I record the first of the new Q&A podcasts, Q&A interviews that I'm going to do later this month, no doubt I'll be returning to that subject. Well, thanks once again for joining me today on The Painful Truth. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. (music) 